Well, welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. And I am uh, really looking forward to the time when we can all be together. Again, we had so much fun this morning, just fellowshipping, praying for our service, praying for people in our church. And I am looking forward to us all being able to do that together again. And um, I just want to let you know that we do have plans. We are we're planning and thinking through reopening the whole church. And uh, that includes all of our ministries at church. And so that is on our agenda. And just know that that is coming. And we really value meeting together. We, met, we value fellowship. And we also value doing that in a way that is um, safe, that is physically safe. And uh, for us... This is first and foremost not political. Uh, This is a a desire for us as a church family, as Christians, to honor Christ, to care for the spiritual and physical well-being of the people in our church. And uh, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but there are some recent uh, legal decisions, some things going on that impact um, kind of our, our government mandates for the church. And you could be praying about that. For example, in Nevada, if you're a casino, you can open to 50% of your capacity. Um, so there could be thousands of people together in a casino. But if you're a church, regardless of your size, you're limited to 50 people. And, you know, first and foremost, when it comes to those kind of things, you know, uh, we care more about what God says and what God thinks than what people say. Um, however, it is interesting, even as Americans, the First Amendment doesn't protect casinos. It protects churches. And uh, Nevada has a different view of that. And so just as believers, we need to be praying for the church. We need to be praying for our, our political process, the judges that will be involved in these things. And it actually fits directly into um, what our sermon is about today. The title of our sermon is The Kingdom of God. Make sure you're in it. And, and when you think about the meeting of the church and why we meet, we are about, are about eternally significant things. Do people have a relationship with God? Are they learning how to, once they come to know Christ, are they learning how to live out their Christianity? And, and is that what we are doing in the church, those essential things? Well, this morning we're going to look at six parables on the kingdom of God. And um, we're gonna be looking at, just to define and to kind of think through what the kingdom of God is about, there are many elements and dimensions of the kingdom of God. And it's, it's God's rule in heaven, God's rule in our heart, God's rule physically on earth when that happens. But, and so there are different elements of the kingdom of God, but there is something that is connected to every single element of the kingdom of God, and that is eternal life, it is salvation. And we kind of see that work its way out in a conversation that Jesus has in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 27. And there's a man who comes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has a conversation with him, but then then he kind of zooms in on actually something that we're gonna emphasize today, the value of the kingdom of God, And he just zooms in on that and he says to this man, okay, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have eternal life. And in that conversation, Jesus goes on and and that man goes away sad 
because he valued his possessions more than eternal life. And Jesus says to his disciples how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In that passage, eternal life is connected with the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus goes on to say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples respond by saying, well, then who can be saved? And so the kingdom of God, and as we consider these parables, there are many dimensions. But the primary thing that we're going to be focusing in on this morning is that element of salvation, that element of repentance from sin, forgiveness by God, being brought into God's family, and being saved for all eternity. So as we think through the Gospel of Matthew, so if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. And as you think through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew starts by talking about who Jesus is, his virgin birth, the prophecies that he is the foretold Messiah. It focuses in on what Jesus did, the things that he did and the things that he taught. And one of the things that I think is amazing is Jesus's emphasis on genuine salvation, on being right with God, the urgency of thinking through the difference between religion and a relationship with God. And how that theme just goes around over and over, it is a huge emphasis on salvation. And it's interesting because Jesus does two things. First, he invites people to come into a relationship with him. He talks about how he is gentle, humble in heart, and how coming to Jesus provides rest for your soul. Jesus loves us. He died for us. He accomplished everything for us. And yet, God is holy. He is righteous. He is awesome. He is to be worshiped. And there is a choice in deciding between a relationship with Christ or not having one. There is a choice with eternal consequences. And it's interesting because this message is something that God has been giving, given from day one in Genesis from the description of the creation of the earth through the end of Revelation, there is this choice. In fact, Ezekiel says it this way. Ezekiel 18.31 says, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. What is amazing is that that message in the Old Testament, Jesus actually repeats. Like, just think about what's happening in Matthew um, as Jesus preaches a sermon on the mount. And he starts by just saying how blessed it is to be a child of God, to be in the kingdom of God. His sermon on the mount starts with the Beatitudes and just those lists of blessings and just how blessed, how happy, how enviable a person would be when they're in God's kingdom, when they have a relationship with God. Contrast that with Matthew 23, where Jesus is just pronouncing woe on the religious people who they're religious, but they don't genuinely know God. And he just says, how happy for the person who's in the kingdom, but how sad for the person, 
how devastating for the person who is not. And we're going to see this in our passage this morning. There are many misguided people. They live for pleasure. They live for happiness. They live for fulfillment, riches, fame, even living for good, worthy, valuable things, feeding the hungry, caring for the poor and needy. And Jesus is here to tell us that only God's kingdom is worth pursuing. And it is real, and it's all that really matters. And now as we pursue God's kingdom, we do lots of good things as well. But it's pursuing God things. It's, it's pursuing the right things for the right reasons. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. And in our passage, we're going to actually finish out Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to see five things. And the first thing we're going to see is the parable of the weeds. It's the biggest section. And we're going to learn that not everyone is in the kingdom of God. Not everybody is. But the kingdom of God is powerful. It is influential. It is of ultimate value. And God's kingdom brings with it eternal consequences. And we're going to wrap it up by just looking at the end of Matthew chapter 13, which reminds us that the kingdom of God requires a personal response. So let's look at this first section. Let's look at the fact that the kingdom of God is not, everybody is not in the kingdom of God. Uh, let's, let's start by reading this. It's, this is the parable of the weeds. And there's actually in this parable, it is an emphasis on the unsaved people. This is the parable of the weeds or the parable of the tares. And the, the disciples identify the key element of this parable. So let's read it. And Jesus is going to tell a story. And, and this is just a reminder. As Jesus tells these parables, um, for some of them, without explanation, we wouldn't be able to make sense of them. And, and we're going to be seeing that we're talking about a sower. We're talking about seeds, which we also talked about last week. But sowers and seeds are different in these parables. And Jesus explains that difference. So it's important for us to look at this. So let's read it. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, he says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed. And we know that good seed, he's going to define that as Christians. In the previous parable, the seed was the word of God. In this parable, the seed is actually a believer. It's God's work, God working in the heart of a person, bringing them to salvation, and planting them. So the good seeds in this are Christians. And so it says, he sowed the good seed in his field. And his field is the world, we learn. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy, which we'll find is Satan, came and sowed seeds, sowed weeds. And those are false believers. Those are the rocky soil and the, and the weedy soil uh, from last week. So he, he sows weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and they bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants, and, and we find out that those are angels, the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? 
how then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and to gather them? And he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers. Now in the original story of this parable, when Jesus tells it, notice this. He says, gather the weeds and first bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. That is a half a verse in the parable. One of the things that we'll see when we look at the comparison of where Jesus explains this parable, that he um, quickly explains everything, but he actually takes what was given originally in a half a verse and he spends four verses explaining it, that is an emphasis, the eternal destiny of people in the world. So here's a few things to, as we think about this uh, with the parable and the weeds. First of all is that the, the weeds that were sown, there, there was actually a law against sowing weeds into, into your enemy's field. And there are people that did that. If they hated somebody, they would go sow weeds. Like imagine a person's like planting a garden. They're doing their best to kind of make everything work. And, and when they're not paying attention, somebody goes and throws a bunch of grass in there. Like we do everything to keep the weeds out of our garden. And so an enemy would sow these weeds. And it was very harmful because the weeds would choke out the good plants. And so it, it's a damaging, hateful, harmful thing to do. And so um, the, the difficulty with these weeds that were sown is that the ones that were sown in this story, um, they look alike until they grow and mature. And so it's hard to tell them apart. And, and that is a, a good reminder. We see here that, um, that we're not the ones that are to sort out necessarily the weeds and the good grain. That is something that God will do at the end. And the other thing that stands out to me in this is the value of, of the grain. Like I was just thinking about if I had like weeds growing in my garden, I had a bunch of good plants, my priority would be let's get all the bad weeds out. And if we take a few good ones with it, fine. Overall, it will be better. But Jesus actually in this parable shows the value of every single believer. And God says no uh, it's not for the well-being of the whole. I care about every individual. And no, don't pull those weeds out because you might accidentally uproot a believer. And so you just see the, the priority and the care and the risk that is taken to guard every believer. The other thing that does stand out in this parable is that in the end, God is going to sort out everything perfectly. So let's read this again. Let's read the explanation. Go down to verse 36. And so Jesus leaves the crowds, and when he leads the, leaves the crowds, he come, his disciples come to him. It says, then he left the crowds, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds. They have zoned in that there's something significant about the weeds in this parable. And then Jesus explains these things. He says, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. 
The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. He just kind of goes through really quickly, and he just labels these various pieces. But then he takes that half a verse, and he spends four verses explaining it. That's what he says in verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, he spends three verses there talking about the destiny of the weeds, the destiny of the sons of Satan. And then in verse 43, he spends a verse talking about the destiny of his children. He says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he ends by saying, he who has ears, let him hear. You know, it's interesting when you think about this, the fact that um, one of the things I think about is that the, the whole world belongs to God. It is God's world. I, I hear many people say things like, you know, as Christians, we should honor God, we should obey God, but unbelievers, we can't expect them to live like believers. And while we don't expect an unbeliever to live like a believer, the reality is that God owns the world, God owns every person, every single person is obligated to honor God and to obey God, believer or not. When Jesus tells other parables, he talks about good and faithful slaves and he talks about wicked, rebellious slaves. And in that, everybody's a slave. They are a slave of Christ, he owns them. That, that applies to every single person, is owned by God, is obligated to love and worship and to obey God. And there are some who harden their hearts and they refuse to do that, but that does not remove their obligation. It does not remove the fact that they live in God's world. They're in God's field. So there are two kinds of believer, two kinds of people in this. We have believers and unbelievers. God is the one who sows believers and Satan sows the unbelievers. You know, that is just an incredible thought. When we, when we think about that, that the church and the world among religions is made up of believers and unbelievers. And it is very important that we understand the significance of that as we evaluate and think about our own life and also as we think about ministry. You know, we want to make sure that we're just not gathering people up who are wheat or tares and that we have no concept of that, that we're not evaluating in our own heart, do I really know the Lord or am I just religious? As we're doing ministry, that we're thinking about the people that we are caring for and ministering to, recognizing that people are growing up in, in God's field and Sometimes it is hard. You might look at somebody and go, oh, I think maybe that person's an unbeliever, but maybe they really are a believer. Maybe you're looking at another person and you're thinking, oh, I think that person's a believer, but maybe they are, maybe they're not. We can't always see that correctly, and we need to be mindful of that in our own life. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves. 
to see if you're in the faith because you are in the faith unless you fail the test. And so we need to be evaluating that as we pursue ministry, our kids, the people we're teaching in Sunday school, we are praying that God will work in the hearts of people and bring them to salvation. As we think about the whole issue of the tares, um, that, that is discussed in the church. And, and uh, we'll look at that in a second. But, but when you think about this, it's really important for us to understand that there are people that are saved and those who are lost. When, when we ask the question, who goes to heaven? Uh, we can just say this with certainty. The answer is not everyone. Uh, when you, that is something Jesus has made clear from the very beginning of his teaching, and he, he does all through the Gospels. It's something that the Bible is very clear about, is that there is going to be an eternity where everyone will give an account to God. And one thing that is certain is that not everyone is saved. And so if the, question, if the answer to the question, who goes to heaven, if that answer is not everyone, then that makes us ask the question, then who is? And, and so we need to be mindful of that. And, uh, and our goal, uh, like the way that God says, hey, no, you can't just rip out all the plants. You might make a mistake. Um, I think about the fact that the church can have many people in it that don't actually know the Lord. And that's exciting and encouraging to me. In fact, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 talks about this. And it just says this, and the Lord's servant, must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. This is in the context of the church. Sometimes there are people in the church who kind of cause problems, potentially they're troublemakers, and maybe they try to teach things that aren't right. And, and what we find out in this passage in 2 Timothy is they're unbelievers, and God says, as a church family, we need to be loving, we need to be gracious, we need to be patient, we need to know what the Bible says. We need to lovingly, graciously, patiently correct people who believe things that are not true. And it says we do that with gentleness. Look at this in the middle of the verse. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Like as we think about the weed and the tares, we don't want to rip the tares out. We don't want to rip the weeds out. We're praying that those weeds would get saved. What an incredible blessing. You know, I think about the fact that Satan is planting people in the church to damage the church, to harm the church, to cause division, to cause people to sin. And those people, they show up and they sit in Bible studies and they sit in the church and they hear God's word. And all of that is an opportunity for Satan's plant to actually come to know Christ and be saved. What an amazing thing. So the first thing, first point, not everyone is in the kingdom of God. Here's the second thing. Even though not everybody is in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is powerful and it is influential. 
And one of the things that we'll see in these next two paragraphs is that they're not given an explanation. And it's amazing. They're short, simple, small parables with a big point that God's word is that the kingdom of God is influential and powerful and there's no explanation. And it's amazing to me how even with these simple parables, when there's no explanation given, how many different views people come up with. So he, he put another parable, verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the big point is that the kingdom of God starts small but grows and is powerful and influential. And I think that the, the reference to the birds coming and nesting in the branches is talking about the provision that the kingdom of God makes in a broad sense, in a cultural sense. You know, Christianity is an incredible blessing for the world. You think about how it blesses marriages, families, the dignity of all humans, compassion, mercy, education. Do you know how many schools were built by Christians? How many hospitals were built by Christians? Minister, ministries that go out and care for the needs of the world. The incredible impact that Christianity has had on cultures. I remember going to India. India is the most prejudiced place I've ever been. And when you look at the Hindu areas and they have the caste system and there's people that are poor that are treated like they're not even human. I spoke to one man and he was just saying, oh yeah, no, I would never let one of those people come into my house. I mean, if they were hungry, I'd put food outside for them to eat, but I would never let them come into my house and eat. Uh, people that are viewed as animals. And, and, and actually, even in that same conversation, he was talking about how he was dating somebody from a different caste. Both of them had been uh, given in marriage to somebody else, hadn't been married yet, but there was no hope for them to ever have a permanent relationship with each other because they were in different castes. Uh, that was an area, by the way, that, that if you eat beef, you could potentially be killed. If you disrespect a cow or harm a cow that they revere, you might be mobbed and murdered in the street. So that was one area. And we went to the other area, the, the, the northeastern side, and it was interesting how different it was. Still, many of the problems of India, but William Carey had gone and ministered there, and we actually ate beef in a restaurant. I just want to say not a good idea to go to India and eat beef, but um, we ate beef in a restaurant. And when I talked to, to people who wanted to become school teachers and, and just looking at opportunities that they had in that area, that in the other heavily casted places, there was no opportunity. Now, what's sad for India is that the, the, the gospel, the blessing of salvation in that area was lost. People didn't know the Lord but you saw the influence for good that Christianity had had in that culture. I don't know if you know this, but Christianity is the largest uh, religion in the world. In 2015, it's 2.38 you know, billion people, 2.3 billion people. So Christianity started so small, but is the largest religion in the world. When you think about the United States, Christianity is still 
the largest religion in the United States. You'll see that Protestants are 43% of the United States. Now, within Protestantism, actually Protestants, uh, um, Christians in the United States, the percentages are on the way down. They are shrinking. But even though they're shrinking, Protestants are the largest group in the United States. The pervasive nature. When you think about the blessings of living in the United States, a lot of those things flow from the principles that come out of Christianity. And so uh, the influence of the kingdom is huge. By the way, Protestantism is shrinking. Um, Do you want to know which Protestants are shrinking? All the liberals, everybody who's abandoned scripture, all the churches that are like, oh, this message is not popular. Let's not preach it. Let's conform to the world. All the compromising Christian Protestant groups are shrinking. There is only one Protestant group that is growing in the United States. It is the spiritually faithful conservative Protestants who say, no, um, what the Bible says is true. Uh, I am a born again. The people that describe themselves as born again Protestants, that is the only group of Protestants growing in the United States. That's That's what happens. People who compromise for the world, it's like they just end up disappearing. That happened in Europe a place that used to send missionaries everywhere. Now nobody's a Christian because they compromised. In Africa, um, Christianity is growing. Faithful, conservative Christians are exploding in the continent of Africa. And so the, the kingdom of God, the true kingdom of God, is influential. In addition to that, the next parable, I think, is talking about the influence of the kingdom of God in a person's life. Look at verse 33. It says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. It's taking a lump of dough and putting a lump of, of dough and putting leaven in it and how that leaven spreads and influences the entire lump of dough. You know, I think that this is just talking about how the kingdom of God transforms a person's life. There's no part of a person's life that is not touched and influenced by the kingdom of God. Christianity touches your family relationships, your work relationships, what you do for recreation, how you view your past, that God has forgiven you for anything in your past. Um, looking at struggles and difficulties and hardships that you've gone through in your past and knowing that God's hand was in that and that no matter how painful or sorrowful it is, God can use that for good. It, it, it impacts how you view your future, um, how you view your future in this life, knowing that God loves you and cares for you and has a plan for you and how you view your eternity knowing that nothing that happens in this life is final. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Everything about you is changed. The old has passed away. The new has come. And so Jesus has said, hey, not everybody is in the kingdom of heaven, and we learned some things about that. The kingdom of God is very powerful and influential. 
And then he goes on in verse 34, and he reminds them of the purpose of parables. Now, we've already seen this in Matthew 13, 14. Uh, Parables are judgment on people who don't listen, and they are a blessing to those who do listen. And here Jesus is going to say something else about the purpose of parables. In verse 34, he says, These things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Jesus' teaching in parables was again a testimony to who he was, that he was the Messiah who came to preach. Here's a third thing that we see, is that the kingdom of God is of ultimate value. There's two parables told here, no explanation given. And so I think that the concepts are simple. Uh, People, it's interesting what people do. They say that, that the first one represents Israel, the second one represents the church. I think these two parables have one meaning, and that's just to say that the vow, the kingdom of God is of ultimate value. Read these with me. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. So people used to bury treasure. There weren't banks. There weren't safes. They would hide things. And so he finds this treasure in a field, and so he hides it. And then in joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Um, What's the point there? It's that if you find a field and it's got a billion dollars in it, and you can buy that field for $100,000, you're going to go sell your house, your car, you're going to borrow every dollar from everybody you can to come up with that $100,000. You're going to go buy that field and get the treasure that is in it. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What's the point? The point is that the kingdom of God, salvation, eternal life, is worth more than anything else on earth. You know, Jesus has taught that over and over. We've seen that as he's talked to people about coming to Christ. Matthew 16, 26 says this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, think about that. What is there in life that is more important than a person's standing before Christ? When you think about Jesus and that rich young ruler, you know, this is an interesting thing that actually a requirement of salvation is that God has flipped on the spiritual lights of your heart that you see the value of Jesus. Jesus says to people, unless you forsake your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. All true Christians recognize the value of the kingdom of God. They, tr- they trade everything they have to get something of ultimate value. It's why Jesus said to the rich young ruler, He says, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus says, here's how you'll know. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And he went away sad. Why? Because in his heart, 
He valued his riches over a relationship with Christ. When God flips on the spiritual lights in your heart, you will value nothing more than your relationship with Christ. Look at Job in the Old Testament. Everybody in his family dies. He loses all of his riches. And he falls on his face and he says, blessed be the name of God, and he worships because his ultimate treasure is God himself. Jesus says, be content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We're always content as believers because we have Jesus, our ultimate treasure. Paul in Philippians 3 says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You want to know what the difference is between a believer and an unbeliever? An unbeliever sees Jesus. They may understand the facts about Jesus. They may actually even believe like the Pharisees. Okay, Jesus is who he said he is. Look at all the miracles he's done. They may know all the facts. But in their heart, Jesus is not attractive. For a believer, God does a work in our hearts that allows us to look at Jesus, to see him for who he is, and to value him more than everything else. We are brought to Jesus. We are brought to salvation by looking at Jesus and saying what he has, who he is, what he offers is more valuable than anything else in life. The fourth thing that we're going to see here as we look at this is that the kingdom of God brings eternal consequences. The kingdom of God brings eternal consequences. Look at verse 37. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. You know, when the kingdom of God is thrown into heaven like a net, um, nobody gets to decide, oh, yeah, no, that's not for me. I'm not a part of that. I got my own religion. I got my own belief system. That, That could be your truth, but this is my truth. No, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven gives nobody any options or any choices. The kingdom of God goes into the sea. It's like a net. It gathers fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw threw away the bad. And then this is the other parable that Jesus actually explains. Like think about in the wheat and the tares, the the attention that's given to the eternal destiny of the weeds. And here, the attention that is going to be given to the eternal destiny of people that are not the fish, the good fish. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out They will separate the evil from the righteous and they will throw them into a fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus says to them, have you understood all of these things? And they said to him, yes. 
So Jesus explains that there is an eternal future for those who know the Lord and for those who don't. The eternal future for those who know the Lord is is blessing. The eternal future for those who don't know the Lord is eternal torment where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then they say, yes, we understand these things. And he says to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The significance of that, scribes studied scripture and they taught it. And Jesus is just making this analogy. If you've been trained for the kingdom of heaven, you're going to study God's word and you're going to teach the things that are new and the things that are old. And when we think about this sense, there is a sense in which everybody is in the kingdom of God, not a personal relationship, but in the sense that they have the obligation to wholeheartedly worship and be thankful to God, in the sense that they have the obligation to fully obey God, in the sense that they have an obligation to humbly repent and trust Jesus to forgive them when they fail. And in the sense that they are accountable and will be judged. And in the sense that they have absolutely no say in any of those things. Somehow we get the idea that we get to pick our own rules or we get to choose our own religion. Um, You can choose that, but it will mean nothing in the day of judgment because God owns the world. He owns every person And he's calling everybody to come to him. He's just saying, I'm loving. I've died for you. I love you. I care for you. And so he's calling us, and it's a wonderful call where there's no pressure. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light because he's the one who did it all. And so he's calling us, but there are eternal consequences for those who harden their heart against God. You know, when I think about COVID-19, I think about the mission and the purpose of the church. You know, COVID-19 is not a reason to close the church. It's a reason to open the church. Nobody should say, I'm not going to go to church. I might get COVID. People should say, oh, no, I I might get COVID somewhere. I better go to church. Nobody should be saying, I don't want to take my kids to church. They might get COVID. Rather, people should be saying, my kids might get COVID in our society. I need to get my ch- kids to church so that they can hear God's words so that, so that we can work on their heart before it gets hard. People, people should be thinking, oh no, what if my kids die crossing the street or they kid, my kids drown in a swimming pool or they die on the way to or the way home from school or they live a full long life. And they die with a hard heart toward the Lord. COVID's not a reason to close the church. It's a reason to open the church. And what I mean by that is not that we shouldn't be careful. If a person came to me and said, oh, man, I'm high risk. If I go to church and I get COVID, I'm going to die. I would say, okay, stay home, you know, because you can come to church next month. You don't have to come today. But the big deal about the church is that our purpose is so significant and so transcends any of the risks. People who, they take risks going to the grocery store. They take risks talking to their neighbors. And yet we have a society that wants to close the church. That is actually a satanic thing to want to close the church. The only thing that protects people ultimately 
against the devastating consequences of COVID or any other kind of disease. Now, I will say this. There's a lot of churches that don't focus on the gospel. They're not working on whether or not people are saved. They're just trying to teach them to be good, nice people. They're just trying to make them happy. And if that's the purpose of the church, you might as well close. And I would not, I would certainly not risk my life for some good advice or some people are just going to be nice to me or not say anything to offend me. But when it comes to a church whose purpose is to see people come to know the Lord, to share the gospel, to teach them the way of eternal life. And then once a person becomes a believer, to train them to live out that Christianity in life. Now that's a church that's worth going to during COVID-19. And I think that there are plenty of churches that are closed and they don't care and neither does anybody else. And it's because they don't do what is eternally significant. But when a church is committed to eternal significance, I'll just tell you what, um, I can go to church and teach kids in Sunday school the way of eternal life and to pray for them and to encourage them. That is worth risking your life for. And so I'm not in this saying that we should be careless, that we should just disregard the dangers that go along with COVID. But I think many people are happy to see the doors of the church close because they don't understand the significance of what happens in a church or because they are not committed to those significant things that happen in the life of the church. When it comes to uh, the kingdom of God, we each need to make a personal choice. Look at, um, this is the, the fifth part. We make a personal choice. Look at verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished. You know, again, these are people that when Jesus teaches, they sense the power of his teaching. The Sermon on the Mount closes by people saying they were amazed that he taught with such authority. And these people are astonished. And they said, where does this man get his wisdom? And he is saying things that are wise. And these mighty works, the miracles that Jesus is doing that are undeniable. And then they say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother not called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? By the way, James, his brother James, wrote the book of James. And then there's Joseph, and there's Simon, and there's Judas. And his brother Jude wrote the book of Jude. And so Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. Jesus was born of a virgin, but none of his siblings were. Joseph and Mary had a normal marriage relationship, and Mary had other kids, and they all grew up in this town. And they looked around and they said this, hey, isn't this Jesus that we know, that we watch grow up, and here's his family? And then they say, where did this man get all these things? And verse 57 kind of comes out of left field because of all these things they just said. Verse 57, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household 
And he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. You know, it reminds me of Matthew eleven six, where Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know, in our culture, Christ is offensive. And actually, that is very unfortunate for everybody who is offended by Jesus. You'd think that people that were close and that grew up with Jesus would be more attracted to him, but they disregarded him. And in many cases, that happens. But for us as believers, we don't shrink back in shame. We are not afraid to proclaim Christ. Uh, We can go into schools and secular institutions, or we can get in crowds of people who hate Jesus. But as Christians, we're not afraid to say Jesus' name. We're not afraid to stand up for truth just because people are offended. No, the people who are offended are the very ones who need to hear about Jesus. Paul tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord or of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And Colossians 1.28 says, we pro- Him we proclaim, that is Jesus, warning. We warn people the way Jesus warned. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. As we think about the kingdom of God, we need to think about, first of all, are we in it? Do we recognize these, things, these five things about the kingdom of God? That's a personal evaluation. And we need to think about in our ministry, are we mindful of the way people need the gospel and they need salvation? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these parables that communicate to us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Lord, in a culture and in an age where it seems like many believers are afraid to say anything offensive, Lord, we know that even people who grew up with you in your town were offended by you. What a terrible thing. I pray that you would help us never to capitulate to the people that are offended by you, but rather, Lord, we would seek to please you. And so we just ask that you would bless those in our church family and in our, in our community with salvation in your name. Amen.